Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Alexander Gasmerarian, a doctoral candidate in the Department of Politics at Princeton University, and Dustin Tingley, professor of government at Harvard University, about their new book, Uncertain Futures, How to Unlock the Climate Impasse. Alex and Dustin have given lots of thought to how policy can support the communities that might be negatively affected by a shift away from fossil fuels. In this conversation, they'll describe why policy is needed, how policy can be designed effectively, and why a bottom-up approach can empower local stakeholders and bring forward innovative solutions. We'll also talk about the challenges and the tricky politics surrounding the energy transition and climate change more broadly. Stay with us. Alex Gasmerarian from Princeton and Dustin Tingley from Harvard. Welcome to Resources Radio. Hey, great to be here. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you guys for for being here and for writing such a fascinating book that we're going to talk about. The book is called Uncertain Futures, How to Unlock the Climate Impasse. And we're going to get to substance in just a moment. But just like we do with all of our guests, uh, I'd love to ask each of you how you got interested in this field. Did you become passionate about the environment at a young age? Did you get into it later in life? Uh, have you always been an energy nerd? Uh, what's the sort of story behind uh, your journey into this field? Oh, thank you, Daniel. When growing up, it was hard not to be concerned about climate change. But for me, the moment that really crystallized it was a policy debate, um, which is perhaps a little nerdy of an explanation. But when I started debate, one of the first topics we had was about the issue of whether the federal government should increase renewable energy subsidies. And just from the moment of diving into that topic, I was hooked by the politics of the issue, and I haven't looked back. That's great. Dustin, how about you? Yeah, you know, it's uh, interesting. It's a good question. I, you know, I think I became interested in environmental issues a long time ago. Um, I grew up on a farm for a little bit and, uh, you know, we had animals and whatnot. And so a little bit later in life, I started <laughs> doing research on antibiotic resistance um, due to the use of antibiotics in livestock production. And that kind of triggered a, just a general interest in science and you know, nature and policy and whatnot. Um, and then growing up in North Carolina for a while, you know, that was an area where, you know, tobacco was uh, beginning to wane, um, you know, making of furniture, textiles and whatnot. So, uh, you know, an interest in the transition of, um, you know, economic communities, and then certainly with uh, family in West Virginia, uh, the connection with energy was just all too salient. You know, lots of childhood memories of driving to West Virginia and having to sit for a, you know, 15 mile long or at least seemingly coal train going through before you could proceed. So, um, yeah, it's just really exciting to be uh, working in this space and uh, lots of interesting people doing great work. Couldn't agree more. And um, those are both really interesting uh, sort of backgrounds. And you know, you two guys are, are certainly uh, some of the scholars who are working actively on this topic. And, uh, you know, this is a topic that sometimes people refer to as just transition. Uh, that term's a little bit fraught, but, um, you know, the book really focuses on strategies to address the challenges that fossil fuel workers and the communities they live in uh, are facing today and are likely to face even more so in uh, energy transition. One of the things that I've come across working on these topics is that sometimes you meet commentators, especially from the world of economics, and they might argue that, you know, we've had economic transitions before, we'll always have economic transitions, and that government intervention to sort of intervene in a transition 
will probably cause more problems than it will solve. So um, to get us started, why do you think there's a role for government here? And just why is it important for policy um, to, uh, to, to play a part in the transition? So in uncertain futures, we take this question head on and we talk about three different reasons for why there is a role for the government to play. Uh, moral reasons, economic reasons, and political. Um, and from the moral perspective, it's simply the right thing to do. Uh, it, their people's lives are at stake, um, their livelihoods, uh, their community's well-being. Um, and when a major industry, think about coal mining, leaves a community, there's a real scarring effect on that community. They lose funds to pay for public school education, to pay for roads, to pay for emergency response. Um, and on top of this, this energy transition is not going to happen automatically. It's going to require government intervention. So there is a responsibility to help those who are impacted because of the policies that are put into place to accelerate this transition. But the, the economic reason, too, and something that we challenge in our book is there's this idea that, well, people will just adjust. They'll, they'll move to places that have other jobs, and this process will be seamless. But, but that's not really realistic. Uh, when, you, when you talk to people on the ground, people have real attachments and ties to the communities where they grew up in. Um, some people don't have the resources to, to move other places. So a lot of assumptions behind some economic models of labor mobility don't really work in practice. And we've seen this in response to other downturns in the past, when we've seen places that got hit by international trade, deindustrialization, a lot of people stayed stuck in place. Uh, they, they didn't move and adjust as uh, some of these models would suggest they do. And then the last reason why there needs to be a response is it's smart politics. You know, the composition of uh, Congress and swing states like Pennsylvania, these are areas that are politically important. They're also areas that are going to be hard hit by the energy transition. So if we see opposition arising from these communities that are hit, that could stymie political reforms if they're not brought into the coalition. You know, one of the things that I've done research on and you see in response to uh, the downturn of coal after the shale gas boom is that it was incredibly important for Trump's messaging um, in winning states like Pennsylvania, West Virginia, attacking the war on coal. And that means you bring into office people who have radically different policies that might slow the energy transition. So I, you need to pay attention to the role of government, not just for moral reasons, but also economic and political ones. Yeah, and I just add one one small thing to that, which is that a scholar at Stanford, Michelle Anderson, has this great phrase called suitcase solutions, which kind of sums up some of the some of the economics view of these sort of more place-based development things, which is to say, we're not going to do it. Here's the suitcase, get going. Now, I think it's um, a matter of coming up with what are the smart ways to do it, right? Rather than saying it's impossible and, and uh, you know, pack up your suitcases and move to the city. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. And, um, you know, one of the cool things about this book is that you guys are actually in these places. You are going to the bars in these communities. You're talking to people at county fairs uh, and you're really getting a sense of how people react to these ideas. And um, I think that's such a valuable perspective to bring when when people's heads are sometimes in the clouds on these topics. Um, one of the things you do pretty early on in the book is you articulate your core argument uh, for kind of what you're going to lay out throughout the rest of the book. And it really focuses on, on uh, uh, one word, which is credibility. So 
this word credibility? Why is it important? Why is it at the core of your argument? And um, yeah, just, just help our listeners understand what you mean by this word credibility. Yeah. So when governments make promises, say we're going to invest in a community or we're going to support workforce development, help, you know, some disruptions that are happening in industries, governments face a problem. They face a credibility problem. And that credibility problem is due to the fact it's really hard to make promises about what they're going to do in the future. Because when the future arrives, maybe things have changed. Maybe the priorities of government has changed. It could be a brand new administration, right? Um, the macroeconomic context could have changed and maybe they can't pay for something uh, then in the future. And so all of these things stack up um, into these credibility problems. So some of you um, who might have taken an economics course uh, might be familiar with a sort of credible commitment problems or time inconsistency problems. These all are um, the same thing. It's just that people will form an expectation that maybe in the future, these promises won't be there, right? And so when I'm trying to be enticed by, hey, let's do a transition now, um, I've got to be concerned. And, and that concern is something that came up again and again in conversations we had with folks on the ground. Would they call it that term? No. Um, would they use different language um, like trust? Um, uh, you know, the government's going to walk away from me. They're only here today, but they'll be gone tomorrow. Uh, these sorts of things. Um, those are credibility problems. And uh, governments all over the world face them. Uh, and uh, part of the challenge is saying if we're going to have this transition, this transition that's going to take a long time, right? This is not just a one year and we're done sort of transition. Then we've got to think about how to make some of these policies durable, long lasting, and credible. And when you do, as we'll talk about later, then you're going to get buy in in a way that otherwise you wouldn't. Right. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about solutions today. One follow up question that was sort of percolating in my mind as you were speaking, Dustin, is whether this credibility issue may have gotten worse over the last several decades. I, I'm no expert on this topic, but my understanding is that polling consistently shows that Americans' faith in institutions such as government, media, other sort of large institutions has like waned considerably over the last several decades. Do you think, or first of all, am I getting that right? And, and second of all, do you think that's a contributing factor here? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's lots of great work in political science about the decline of trust in our formal political institutions, uh, especially at the federal level, uh, but even at the state and local level. Um, and so uh, that trust, that glue, that ability to say, hey, you know what, they've made a promise, um, they're going to sort of deliver on it, that has been waning. Um, but there have also been other contributing factors. You know, when we have huge swings from one administration to the next or very partisan uh, swings um, about who's leading the country um, rather than uh, some degree of bipartisan consensus, that can contribute to it too, right? So if I'm thinking, oh, geez, what's going to happen in the next election? Is that person going to unwind all of these things? Um, that's going to contribute to it um, as well. But I don't want to overstate um, this. We've always had these credibility challenges. Um, uh, you know, there's uh, work, you know, dating back to the founding fathers and how the Constitution was an attempt to solve at some level some of these things. Um, but yeah, I think there's a sense that some of these things um, have gotten uh, a lot harder. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, um, let's move on now to another 
kind of big point that you all make in the book. And this is uh, the idea of bottom-up versus top-down strategies. Um, can you help us understand what those terms mean in the context of your analysis and ultimately why you end up making the argument that a very much bottom-up approach is needed to address these issues? Yeah. So what we mean by a top-down approach is one that starts with experts from the ivory tower or from the belt line. And these people are well-intentioned and their expertise is super valuable. But oftentimes when you're making policy that will affect communities and, and you're not actually situated in those communities, it can make it hard to diagnose the types of problems that people face, that workers face, that communities face, um, and also the ways that you could solve those problems. Um, and so what we argue is we need a bottom-up approach, a ground-up approach, um, where you take the insights from people who are going to be living through the energy transition, the people who are both in communities, fossil fuel communities, that will see the nature of their industry and local economy change, but also people in the communities that are going to be receiving all these new green investments that are going to be built out as part of the energy transition. And our policy needs to be informed by what the energy transition looks like to them on a daily basis over the next five years, over the next 10 years, um, because the effects of these policies are not going to be the same everywhere. They're going to be different. They're going to be received differently. Now, here's a one concrete example of this. There's a lot of talk about how we can create new jobs, green jobs, and uh, they'll be good for communities. And certainly this will be the case in many communities. But it, it's hard to just assume that people all want the same type of jobs. So, you know, we spent time talking to uh, experts in vocational schools in Southwest Pennsylvania. And right now, the main type of jobs that they're training for are for the oil and gas industry. And even if you ask them, you know, why aren't you training people for wind jobs or solar jobs? They're, they're skeptical of those programs, not because they're skeptical of climate change, but they're skeptical of there's actual sort of business demand in their area. Um, and so by actually talking to people, you, you can realize that what they need is they need concrete demand for the sort of skills that they're training people for, and they'd be willing to go along with the energy transition. And their opposition stems not from sort of climate denial, per se, but from just the economic reality that they face. And, and that informs a different set of policies once you start talking to people on the ground. And there are downstream you know, consequences for that sort of more bottom-up approach. Um, it's about building partnerships at a certain level, right? And these are partnerships um, where by ha people having sort of input on, uh, you know, what are the sorts of projects? Um, you're getting local information, information that the sort of on high expert might not have. Um, and you're getting that buy-in like, hey, I was part of building this, right? And that really sort of helps downstream. I'd also just point out that, you know, we're certainly not the only ones to say and emphasize this. Um, even uh, RFF has a great new uh, report out about um, New Mexico's oil and gas communities and you know similar sorts of findings about the importance of that kind of bottom-up approach, about the skepticism per se about the federal government, even if they're you know sort of open to those partnerships. But you've got to have that bottom-up buy-in. Um, it's a crucial piece of the equation. I totally agree. And I, I wonder who wrote that uh, New Mexico report anyway. Uh, <laughs> Alex, were you going to say something? Yeah, I, you know, I just wanted to to emphasize uh, something Dustin said and connect it to an earlier point about you know earlier Dustin was talking about how we have these political swings that you know can make promises not credible, 
And this this ties into to this ground up versus bottom up difference. You know, if people feel that the energy transition is something that's imposed upon them without their consultation, that's only going to worsen the types of partisan cultural divides that we have in this country. Um, so so actually by by bringing in more ground up input into this approach, it makes it more consultative and uh, can broaden the coalition in support of some of these efforts. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It, it actually reflects something that um, I've spoken a lot with uh, with my colleague at University of Michigan, Sarah Mills, uh, who we've also had in the podcast. And, and she often makes the point that when local communities feel like wind and solar projects are being erected primarily because of federal or state level support, rather than some kind of like economic motivation or local benefit motivation, they they become very skeptical of those types of projects and, and become more likely to oppose them. Um, so we've been talking about problems for the last few minutes. Um, you all in the conclusion of your book list out a pretty um, comprehensive list of options for solving some of these problems. And, and I don't think we have time to talk about all of them, but I'd love it if you could highlight maybe one or two that you think are particularly important and maybe touch on some of the uh, previous points that you've made in our conversation. Yeah. So, you know, as the title of the book says, you know, part of it is how to solve the climate impasse. So, you know, we do try to lay out some solutions and importantly, provide a lot of empirical evidence for them, right? So it's not just our saying, hey, we think this is a solution, but also bringing some evidence to bear. Um, I'm going to briefly hit on two and then uh, pass it over to Alex. Um, one builds on something you just said about um, the importance of there being local economic benefits, right? It was all too often for us to hear about, say, wind projects where um, the local communities, um, you know, wouldn't have a, wouldn't get any cut, if you will, to kind of put it bluntly, right? Um, uh, and, you know, the local tax contributions would be minimal. Um, maybe they'd be based on property values, which then get depreciated rather than on production, um, such that people just have a, a stake in it. But zooming out more at an institutional level, and you know, this is something that people sort of banter on about sometimes, but there's a really important role for bipartisanship here in helping solve some of these credibility challenges. Um, there's a, a long sort of literature in political science that talks about how when bills are passed in a bipartisan way, um, they're much less likely to be unwound later, right? And we're living in a world where some landmark pieces of legislation like the IRA were not passed in a bipartisan uh, way. And that's not to say that the IRA shouldn't have gotten through and, and whatnot, but it, it does raise the issue of the perception um, that this could be sort of unwound um, in the future because there's not there's not that central coalition. Now, of course, bringing about bipartisanship is a sort of a, a challenge in and of itself. But I think it's just important to just uh, reflect on that broader institutional context. Alex, you're going to talk about transparency. Yeah. So one of the solutions that we talk about in uh, chapter a chapter in our book is transparency and accountability. And this is to address the, the issue that people might be sort of skeptical about whether or not new green investments will generate local benefits for their community. So, you know, we've talked to people where they've had to do wind projects in their communities, but they were done by outside teams of laborers who've come in. And we, we examine the case of, of Minnesota in particular, where which is actually on the forefront of developing wind, but then had a troubling trend where large outside corporations started developing projects with outside teams of laborers. Um, 
And one intervention that they implemented there and that we evaluate is, is transparency. So the, the unions pushed to have the Public Utility Commission, um, which you know oversees new projects, uh, to have a requirement be put in place that companies report on how many local workers are employed by the um, new wind projects. And this is actually like a pretty light requirement. You know, it's not mandating a certain level of local employment. Um, it's simply requiring that companies just say how many workers they have are from the area. And, and what they found was that after this requirement was put into place, that it, it dramatically improved local hiring in the area. And, and it, from the perspective of what a company comes in and says, we're going to create all these local benefits. Well, now people actually can hold them to account because it's, it's transparent what happens. And, and we also evaluate this. So we, we run a series of experiments where we, we, um, half the people in a survey, uh, see that there's going to be a green investment without transparency and the other half see that there will be transparency. And, and it makes a difference. Uh, you, people expect that there's more going to be more local jobs when there's transparency. People, um, think that the community will benefit more. People become more willing to enroll in a program to train for wind jobs. So, so not only does this matter for, you know, actual outcomes like we saw in Minnesota, but it, it also matters for the way that, uh, people on the ground perceive these different types of projects. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, sometimes in the world of um, climate investment, I think there is uh, a recognition of the importance of transparency, but also some concern about the weaponization of uh, being very transparent. Um, the Solyndra case being the sort of classic example of, you know, one relatively modest, uh, you know, federal investment in a clean energy project goes sour. Uh, and it's, you know, again, relatively modest uh, investment in the context of a much broader investment portfolio. And yet the entire portfolio gets tagged as a boondoggle because of the case of this one uh, investment that goes wrong. Is that a concern that you think plays into this transparency issue or is it kind of a separate separate one? Yeah, I think it's a little bit separate. I mean, we're talking about things like uh, local jobs rather than sort of portfolio returns. Um, uh, so I, I think it's um, different in that regard. I think there are, and we talk about in the book, um, some challenges. So for example, there's, um, you know, downstream, okay, you have transparency and say a company um, isn't meeting up to what it had committed to, for example, right? So this happens a lot in uh, the context of uh, local tax incentives, you know, to spur investment. And then they're supposed to hire so many workers and then they don't, and then uh, the community can say, "Hey, we're going to claw back those uh, tax incentives, and now you owe us a bill." And then the company's like, "Well, we're out of here, right?" Um, so my uh, my good friend Nate Jensen down at UT Austin does a lot of work on this, and so there there is a potential downside of transparency. But I think as a first order principle, we're better off being in that world than trying to hide things from people, and you know, uh, being able to highlight where there are these local economic benefits for these new industries. I think is a good thing. And if I can add to that, um, you know. The energy transition is not going to take place overnight. It's not going to be solved by one project. Uh, and in terms of the long-term sustainability of the energy transition, we need to have types of institutions in place that provide for transparency and provide for accountability so communities are willing to accept these new projects. Um, 
And the next community will see from their experience that, okay, if something is not uh, meeting what these commitments were, that that is visible and they can correct for it. I think we're, we're better off in a world with transparency than one without it. Yeah. Yeah. Hard, hard to argue with that uh, from first principles, certainly. One other question that I wanted to ask you guys was um, one that kept popping up as I was reading the book in my own head. And um, it's about it's kind of about rationality. So, um, you know, the arguments you make in your book are extremely rational. They're extremely thoughtful. They are empirically grounded and they all make a lot of sense to me. Um, but I wonder how much that matters in a world where, you know, politics is what it is. The polarization of our society is becoming seemingly kind of worse uh, every day. You know, one team seems like it's for climate policy. The other team seems like it's against climate policy. Um, and so I wonder if, you know, even if we were to be able to overcome all the challenges that fossil communities face, and even if we were able to sort of equitably distribute the benefits of the clean energy economy, how much would that matter in a world where, you know, disinformation is a big problem and polarization is an increasingly big problem? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something that we definitely struggle with um, uh, a lot. You know, I think one thing to point out is that some of these sort of, you know, are you on team climate or not? It's a little bit of a mischaracterization when you get into um, when you get into the weeds a little bit. I remember several of our interviews, um, you know, the first sort of 15 to 30 minutes would be um, us having to dispel certain notions of uh, our my being a Harvard professor and Alex being a Princeton graduate student and talking to folks and, you know, and fossil fuel communities. Um, but once you sort of got beyond like, you know, that team versus some other team, you'd have people say like, of course, I know climate change is happening and that we're causing it, right? I see this all around me. Like I go hunting, right? Um, and so, you know, I think part of that, uh, that there's that veneer of sort of identity as a kind of a protective layer, um, but uh, once you start to dig a little bit deeper, you find a lot of commonalities. Um, it's just nobody, you know, seems to have much of an incentive to talk about that as much anymore, right? Like, why is it this team versus that team rather than um, we're talking about communities, right? And so um, I think there is a big element of identity politics that um, is popping up here. I'd also say that, you know, when it comes to things like misinformation, well, where's a lot of that misinformation coming from? It's coming from very rational actions by fossil fuel incumbent industries that are spreading that misinformation, right? And so what might seem like sort of irrational discourse due to misinformation is actually just a product of a small and very select group of organizations that are economically pursuing a strategy um, to protect their bottom line. And that's a very much a rational process, even though it's going to fry the earth. Um, and so I, you know, I think un underneath, like, there's a lot of very reasonable people. Um, and, you know, once you get past that sort of uh, veneer of team A or B, um, uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot to learn from each other. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I've had those experiences myself in, in energy communities where once you get past a certain surface level, you, you realize the amount of commonality that you have with people, uh, you know, with whom you might make different voting choices. I guess what I'm kind of getting at, though, is less about one on one conversations and more about, you know, voting behavior when people are going to the polls and, um, you know, thinking about climate as one of the issues that they're voting on. Um, 
and and how much addressing these challenges can really sway people at the ballot box where where ultimately you know these decisions are um, going to be reflected in our international politics. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, so I, I absolutely love this question because I think it's a really important to see how this translates into the political behavior of people. And I like to make two points. So just the first is that if you actually you know, look at the political geography of where fossil fuels are, it, it lines up pretty well with you know the sides of what we see as one team being pro-climate or the other team being against it. And in and, and my reading, part of this is just an underlying economic issue where you know the consequence of where fossil fuels are is then gets swept up into polarized politics more broadly. Um, but the, the question that you're asking, too, it points to, well, if we, if we actually do take community seriously and we do provide transitional assistance and compensation, will it make a difference? We provide new investments. Will it make a difference for who they vote for? And that's a tricky question to answer in part because we're really empirically, we're, we're still in the early days of this transition. So we don't have as much data to work on. But these types of just transition agreements uh, were successful in Spain um, in uh, supporting the party that actually backed the phase out of coal. Um, now, of course, the question is, can these generalize to the United States? We haven't had a really concerted effort um, at the national level to provide these types of transition packages uh, to communities. We are increasingly seeing new investments because of the IRA. Um, but I, I do think it would make a difference just from my sort of speculative prognostication perspective, but um, only only time will tell. Yeah. And it is going to be so interesting to watch this play out. And I, I'm sure you guys are going to be watching it play out in the years ahead. So, um, so as we start to learn more and more of these lessons, I hope you'll Come back on the show and, uh, and and talk to us about it because I think they're really going to be crucial for the future. But before we close out our conversation, I'd love to ask each of you to make a recommendation of something that you've read or watched or heard lately. It can be related to the environment only if tangentially, uh, but just something you think is really great and you think our listeners uh, would enjoy. So what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? Oh, that's great. Um, well, Daniel, you're doing lots of great work. So uh, everyone make sure to read what whatever's uh, coming out from your shop. You know, there's a book um, that I really like um, called The Fight to Save the Town. And I mentioned the author at the top of the episode, Michelle Anderson. And it is just a beautifully written characterization of the challenges that small towns across the United States are facing. And I think it's in a world in which all the cities get all the attention um, uh, and, uh, I think it's, uh, a, a good thing for us to keep in mind, um, uh, as we're moving forward, not too much about the environment, lots of other things, but it's just, uh, just beautifully written the fight to save the town by Michelle Anderson. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Alex, how about you? I've got two things. So, uh, one is, is, it's not actually something written, but a podcast and it's called how we survive. It's a podcast from planet money and, what I love about this is that it examines solutions to the climate crisis in a way that's both technical, but also easily accessible. Um, so I'd highly recommend that. And the other is, if you haven't seen it, um, is called Heat Map, um, which is this new great uh, news outlet that's doing reporting on the implementation and effects of the Inflation Reduction Act, and just more generally about how climate change is going to shape different aspects of our lives. Um, and I think they're doing some of the greatest climate reporting out there. So I'd highly recommend checking out Heat Map. Fantastic. 
two great recommendations. I, I'm familiar with both of them. And um, the first season of How We Survive uh, focuses on lithium, if I am remembering correctly. And there's a series of fascinating interviews and stories around a proposed lithium mine uh, called Thacker Pass um, that just all, has all sorts of twists and turns. Am I getting that right, Alex? Yes, yes. Um, and I mean, and that's part of what we're hoping to look at, too, is just ground up approaches to the climate change requires these stories listening to people who be affected and whether that's building new green energy projects or whether that's lithium mining that's going to happen um, these are stories that are important to hear totally well alex gasmerarian dustin tingley authors of uncertain futures thank you so much for writing the book thank you for coming on the podcast thank you for doing all the work that you're doing uh, it's been a pleasure talking about it with you today thank you daniel our pleasure thank you You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.